Turn, if you would, please, tonight to Matthew chapter 24, Matthew 24. And we started last Sunday night a series on how I know the Bible is God's Word. And there might not be anyone here who would have questions about it, but there still needs to be help, I believe, in, in being able to explain it to somebody else or at least give the right information and aid to somebody else and, and be ready for when the questions might come. And so we looked at last week the matter of how we got our Bible. We looked at four particular points. Who could tell me the first one? God's blessing on your life hinges upon whether or not you can get this point. Divine revelation. And who can tell me what divine revelation means? Divine revelation means that it was divinely revealed to us by God's Spirit. We have a book that was divinely given to us. God gave it to us. That's very key. It's a divinely revealed book. Then the second pillar that we talked about was what? Verbal inspiration. Inspiration literally means what? God breathed, making it a living book. And verbal, that's significant because it tells us what? What is it? The, the words, that which was spoken, but verbal contrast with what? Thoughts. And a lot of the uh, different translators and versions that we have, they believe in a thought inspiration. That's why to them it doesn't really matter what it says, but as we looked at one example, you change the, the, the um, description of Mary from being a virgin to just being a young woman, it changes quite a bit. And it does have significance. So we believe in verbal inspiration. The process that God used to write down his revelation is called inspiration. Verbal, it simply means word for word. God used his spirit to work through holy men of God. Holy men of God, Peter says, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What a process. And we mentioned the word plenary. Plenary means what? Complete, full, all Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All of it. All, the genealogies, all of it. Every, the, the words you can't pronounce, all of it. All of it is given to us by God. Which means none of it is insignificant. Now you think about how we might tend to study it or not study it. We just want to grab the, the, the important parts. Well, it's all important. It, it is all God-breathed, living. The third concept, we have divine revelation. It was divinely revealed to us by the Spirit of God. It was not a man-made book. It was divinely revealed by God's Spirit, verbal inspiration. And then the third pillar is what? Providential preservation, you found your notes, that's good. <laughs> Providential pre preservation, 
And what that simply means, well, who wants to try it? He preserved his word. But does that mean that there has always been the word of God for people upon this earth? Or has there been a group of people that maybe didn't have God's word because he just didn't have a way to put it down yet? No, God's people or people have always had access to God's word in different forms. Um, we find in the Old Testament, well, they didn't have the New Testament yet, did they? Now, if they did, we're in trouble. We have to scrap this series. There, there, was, there, was, a, there was different aspects, and we find Adam, did he have God's Word? Yes, he did. He just didn't have it in leather bound like we, we have it, and... and um, so, but we understand that God's promise to always provide people with access to His Word, providential preservation. And that is why we believe that the Bible that we have, the King James Bible, is the preserved Word of God for the English-speaking people. And we can take great confidence in this. This is the book that's been used, the Bible that's been used through every major uh, revival and awakening. It's, it's, a, it's a very uh, significant truth that we can hold on to, providential preservation. But we can have confidence in the preservation, the inspiration, revelation, going at it backwards, revelation, inspiration, and preservation. We can have all those things that gives us our Bible. But unless we have that fourth pillar, Spiritual illumination. We're not going to benefit from it. We can read it, and we can read it with a heart that is already settled to do what we want to do. And I don't remember what Jesus said to Saul. It's hard to kick against the pricks. It's hard to go against the goads. It's difficult to go against the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. He didn't say it's impossible. He just said it's hard. And so we need surrender to the one who revealed this book. And we need submission to the authority of this book so that we can have the Spirit of God turn the light bulb on so that we can understand what the divinely inspired, verbally, in, in, uh, divinely revealed, verbally inspired, providentially preserved, wonderful, life-changing Word of God has for us. And so the soil of your heart makes a difference. We need spiritual illumination. Well, tonight... I want us to look at how were the books of the Bible chosen. We're going to look, focus on the Old Testament here tonight. And I understand, and I, 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 I know this is a challenge. From some, some of this is technical. This is not the kind of feel-good message. But I do believe that there's a, um, a significance to this, and it could help us. So I, I battle with trying to keep it simple and yet stay um, on the course to giving us what we need to be able to put together a complete thought. So Matthew chapter 24, we're going to look at one verse and um, obviously not looking at the passage of Scripture, but we're looking at this thought as we look at how were the books of the Bible chosen. So let's stand together and let's give our respect to 
the Word of God as we're discussing it tonight. Matthew 24, notice in verse 35. Matthew 24, 35, let's say this together. And this is a great verse to memorize. You'll find it repeated several times. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, and let's say it together. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Can you trust that the Bible is God's word? How did we get these books of the Bible? Who chose them? The Apostle Paul said all scripture is God breathed. But who selected them? Was there a selection committee? Were its members inspired? Were the people inspired that chose the inspired books? And how did they determine the number? Let's see if we can figure out how did the 66 books make it to the final cut? Thank you. Please be seated. Let me give you this word tonight. Put down the word canon. C-A-N-O-N. The canon of scriptures. Some think that there was a selection committee that chose the books of the Bible. Some think that they chose the books that they liked and chose the books that they thought were needed. But I want you to get this, that before Ever, even two people could convene to discuss the matter, which books of the Bible are we going to, uh, to contribute and put together, before that was ever even thought of, before it was ever discussed, God had already chosen which books would be included in the entirety known as the Word of God. God determined the books before they were ever written. God picked the authors. God inspired them to write his message, message to specific audiences. And as messages circulated and people read them, they recognized, and that's an important word, they recognized, they recognized which books God's thumbprint was on and which books were not. Now, no selection committee ever came together to just vote on their favorite books. If they had, I'm not sure if Leviticus would have been included. Not if they're just going off of the ones that they felt were warm and fuzzy. But if someone truly understood the significance of Leviticus, then they'd understand its great value. But church leaders then needed to know which books and which letters to copy to consolidate them into one volume. They needed to know which would be included in what is known as the canon. The term canon comes from the Greek word for a reed. In fact, the passage that Brother Brandon referenced, Matthew chapter 11, if you went down a little bit further, you would see that he referred to Jesus spoke of a reed. The reed is the idea of a measuring rod. It means the rule. Canon means a standard. In Revelation chapter 11, another instance, in verse 1 and 2, John, the apostle, he was commanded to take a reed and measure the temple of God. 
He was told to measure. And the point is that a reed was a measuring device. A reed was a rod, a rod that was used to measure. And so a canon simply describes the books that measured up to the standard of Holy Scripture. And they were recognized. Again, that's significant. A group of men recognized. They did not choose. They recognized which books were divinely inspired as the Word of God. They were, there was inspired Scripture that was recognized. They did not choose them. The early church leaders did not choose which books. They simply recognized which books God had already chosen. There are genuine works today by famous artists that are hanging in museum pieces. And, and what these experts have done is they did not choose that they would necessarily become popular or significant why they simply recognize Leonardo da Vinci, Van Gogh, or Rembrandt. They just recognize them to be as such. They scrutinize them for the unique signs of the artist's imprint, and they recognize them to be genuine. On this very subject, J.I. Packer said, quote, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon, then Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation, and similarly, he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. End of quote. Now, by the time Jesus walked on earth, the Jewish leaders, they'd essentially already recognized the Old Testament canon. Now, at that time, the most Jewish leaders taught from the Septuagint. We mentioned that last week. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. The Old Testament would have been written in Hebrew, but they would translate it into Greek, and so it was known as the Septuagint. Jewish scribes translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek under extremely strict regulations. And Jesus confirmed the trustworthiness of the Old Testament canon by quoting from it. And again, Brother Brandon, he gave us a quote. He said, this is Jesus. He's quoting from Isaiah. And Jesus did that very often. In fact, I think the book that was quoted most often by Jesus was the book of Deuteronomy. And so by A.D. 39, the New Testament had taken its form. Now, there's, there were councils, and you'll read about councils that had met together, and such was the Council of Carthage. Council members confirmed what earlier scholars had already recognized, again, recognized as God's inspired word. Big difference between recognizing and choosing. What happened is they would throw out any books that did not measure up to the standard. And there were books that would circulate that were being um, supposed and, and placed upon the church to accept these writings. But they would look at, and they had a standard by which they would go by. They had their, their canon in which they would determine whether or not these books, they, they validated themselves, they vindicated the uh, the authority of God's revelation upon them. Now, 
this ultimately led to the completed Bible that we treasure today. And let me say, there are no new revelations. There are none. God is no longer giving men prophecies of what is to come. You might have a vision. You might have a dream. But I want you to know that while you might have visions and dreams, they do not carry with it any weight of authority that's left for the Word of God. The canon is perfect. The canon of Scripture is sufficient. And God's canon of Scripture, it's closed. I love what Hebrews chapter 1, the book of Hebrews opens up in verse 1 and 2, and it says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners. That just means in many parts and in different ways. God spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. But notice us hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. I want you to see a second thought. We go from the canon to a second thought, and that is what were the guidelines that the scholars used to recognize the inspired scripture? In other words, all right, so there was a canon, there was a standard, but how did they recognize that these books fit into the canon? Well, you remember who wrote the Ten Commandments? God. He wrote them with his own finger. He gave it to Moses. No one could say that we cannot trust it. Unfortunately, God didn't write a list of the books to include in the Bible and then give it to John on the Isle of Patmos. But he did give the promise that he would preserve his word. Isaiah 40 and verse 8, the grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The biblical scholars used some very careful principles, overriding principles to guide them as they accepted the inspired books that would be bound into one volume known as the Holy Bible. Now, they didn't record their guidelines, but modern scholars have, have generally all agreed over the ages as to what was required and what they went by. Remember, the word canon was applied to Scripture to say, we have a set of qualifications by which we will measure a document to see whether or not it fits the qualifications to fit into a whole of documents to be part of the Holy Scripture. And so what was the measure of the canon? What qualifications did ancient writing have to fit in order for it to be considered the Word of God? And this was called the canon of Scripture. Ultimately, they are looking to recognize what is divinely inspired. And that's what they're looking for. The canonicity of ancient writings depended upon their authority. Now you remember the holy men of God, they wrote as God breathed into them the words they were to write down. And so the authority of these divine writings depended upon their inspiration given by God. Are you following? Amen. I know it gets kind of muddy, but I'm trying to repeat. And so, but let me give you these three basic thoughts as to how this, this standard 
this measure, the canon, the canon of Scripture work. What were they looking for? Remember, they're not choosing. I like this one. No, I like this one. You get your pick. I get my pick. It's not what they were doing. They were recognizing. They were recognizing which books had authority. Which books had authority? The ones that were inspired. So how do they determine that? Here's three things. They looked for and they would ask, did a recognized spokesman of God write the book? Was there a recognized spokesman of God who wrote the book? God's spokesman included men like his prophets such as Moses, Isaiah, the apostles such as Peter and Paul, Dr. Luke, who interviewed eyewitnesses to Jesus' life, death, in resurrection. So a book gained its authority or its canonicity due to its general acceptance by the church as men who were recognized as a spokesman for God. It wasn't a matter of, well, here's the church at Ephesus and Ephesus accepts this book, but the church of Philippi does not accept it. It is what all the churches were accepting, recognizing that this is one of God's spokesmen. And if they could not agree upon all of them, then they could not be considered in the canon of Scripture. If all the churches did not recognize that the writers were inspired, they didn't belong in the canon of Scripture or in the body of Scripture that would be accepted in the New Testament or as the Word of God. No church council can make the books of the Bible authoritative. No church council. Indeed, the books of the Bible possessed their own authority long before there were ever any councils or churches established. So the books of the Bible contained their own authority long before the council of Nicaea or any emperor said that these are inspired or these are the word of God. The authority is contained in the writings themselves. So they were asking, is there a recognized spokesman of God who wrote the book? The second thing that they would ask is, does the book agree with the true revealed nature and character and works of God? If the book contradicted what God had already revealed through his spokesman, they tossed it out saying it's not inspired. Even if it contained excellent historical content, or it matched most of what God had revealed, if it contradicted in any of God's revealed and accepted word, it could not be recognized as inspired. There's a third question they would ask. Did the people of God embrace the book as the word of God and subject themselves to its authority. That the people of God embrace the book as the word of God and subject themselves to its authority. See, if the church at large received a book and embraced it by submitting to its teachings as an authority in their lives, they recognized the book. They didn't choose it. They were recognizing the book as inspired. Remember, none of the men involved in the process, none of the men involved in the process of recognizing the canon of Scripture were infallible, meaning without error. None of them. But God is. God is infallible. And God 
had a very special, specific, supernatural process by which he gave us this word. By God's power through the Holy Spirit at work in these men's lives, God gave us the Bible, his everlasting word. We read the the verse, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. If you ever begin a conversation about the Bible with somebody or someone does with you, I hope you'll be a little bit better prepared in answering some questions. But this is what we would call the canon of scriptures. Looking at the authority of these ancient writings and uh, the canonicity of ancient writings depended upon their authority. And that is how they decided which would fit into the body of writings, which one would become the authority. Well, God determined that. They were just recognizing. They were looking to see and discern. A book first had its divine authority based upon God's Holy Spirit inspiring it. And that's what we really talked about last week. And so let me give you a third thought. And that is we're going to narrow it down to the canon of the Old Testament. We're looking at the canon of the Old Testament. For example... Um, as we get down to making an application here of what we've just said. Because when Jesus began his ministry, we didn't have the New Testament as of yet. They were living it out. It was being written. We didn't have the Gospels. They were making the Gospels. We didn't have the epistles of Paul or Peter or John. We didn't have the Revelation. So when Jesus began his ministry and Jesus and the apostles, they quoted again and again from a fixed Old Testament canon of Scripture. And the Bible that Jesus and the disciples quoted from, listen, it was exactly like the Old Testament that you have on your lap here tonight. I find a lot of comfort in that. The same Old Testament that Jesus and the apostles quoted from is the same one that I have. Now, they designated the same writings in the Old Testament scripture. They called them in in three different ways, three different uh, sections. They referred to them as the scriptures. They referred to them as the holy scriptures. They referred to them as the sacred writings. Jesus Loved his Bible. And one of the messages we're going to look at in this series is Jesus and his Bible. And Jesus not only loved his Bible, but he knew his Bible. In John 7 and verse 38, he said, He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said. See, when Jesus added, as the scripture hath said, he did not identify the Old Old Testament passage per se, But there's a number of them that he could have had in mind. Psalm 78, Zechariah chapter 14, and others. But then you find the plural, scriptures. In Matthew 21 and verse 42, Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures? He's referring to Isaiah the prophet. And he calls Isaiah the scriptures. It's the same book of Isaiah that you have. In Romans 1 and verse 2, Paul refers to the Holy Scriptures. In 2 Timothy 3 and verse 15, 
And Paul calls it the Holy Scriptures. And so Jesus and his apostles, they talked about the Old Testament as being the Scripture and the Scriptures and the Holy Scriptures. And it's the same Old Testament, the same body of truth that you and I have today, the very same one. It was fixed at the time of Jesus. Now look at what Jesus said about the Old Testament canon. When Jesus was speaking of the Scriptures and their fulfillment, he referred to the division of the Old Testament this way. He referred to it as the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And it's very similar to how the Jews would divide the Old Testament. They would call it the law, the prophets, and the writings. The law, that would be the first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. The prophets, that referred to all the prophetic writings. And then the, the writings, as the Jews would have that third division, that was the rest. That was everything else. So Jesus also spoke of the time in Luke chapter 11 and verse 51. He spoke of the time, it says, quote, from the blood of Abel until the blood of Zacharias. Now the first martyr of the Old Testament was who? Abel. Killed by who? Cain. Who's the last martyr of the Old Testament? Zechariah. Jesus tells us that. Luke 11, verse 51. And so you have Jesus talking about the first martyr and the last martyr. Now, in the Jewish Bible, the first book, you want to want to guess what the first book of the Jewish Bible would be? Genesis. And the last book, you want to want to guess what the Jewish book would be? Chronicles. And they put all the other books in between. That's the same Old Testament. They just have it in a little bit different order. They had the same scriptures that we have today in our Old Testament. They just arranged the books differently than we have them arranged. And when the books were translated into Greek, into a translation, when they took the Hebrew, translated into Greek, Greek is what the New Testament was written in, when they translated Old Testament into the Greek, it was called what? Septuagint. They were arranged then as we have them today. All right? You following? So it's been the same group, same books for, well, since the day of Jesus. And the Jewish um, divisions would have just, they would just have them in a different order. But when they translated it from the Hebrew to the Greek, it was the Septuagint. They rearranged them so that the way we have it today. Now, there's another source for the Old Testament canon. In other words, there's still another way in which it was, um, it was determined, didn't choose it, but they recognized that God's authority and inspiration was on this. And it comes from a name, uh, from one whose name was Josephus. Now, Josephus lived before and after the time of Christ. You may have heard preachers mention, reference Josephus, the authority, and he is regarded as the, uh, highly regarded as an authority of Jewish history of his day. And you can read volumes of Josephus. 
They're very laborious and they're very difficult to read. But what he does tell us is quite significant, just understanding things in the culture and things about that period of time. But listen, the number of books in Josephus um, he looked up, uh, looked upon having uh, that he had written never was looked upon as having divine authority. It was never included in the Old Testament canon of scriptures. Um, uh, let me say this. Uh, I was going to mention a moment ago, but just in case someone goes to, to digging around and looking up, the Jews would have had 22 books in their Old Testament. Whereas we have how many in ours? 39. And so someone says, no, we don't have the same. But we do. It's the same, same Old Testament. What they did was they just put certain books together. They would have combined Ruth and Judges. They would have put Lamentations and Jeremiah together. And so the Jews just enumerated their books differently. But the 22 books mentioned by Josephus that he talks about the Jews having are still the 39 books that we still have today. And I hope you understand that, um, I hope this is clear, I don't know that I made this point, but many of you would know, when God gave us, the, when He took the Holy Spirit and took holy men and inspired, breathed through them the words that they were to write, they didn't use chapter divisions. They didn't use chapters and verses. That came later. In fact, what we have didn't come around to 16 Hundred seventeen hundred. They didn't have that. They didn't have the pages that we would have. They would have had it on different parchment. And so, when you see the Matthew chapter twenty-four, they wouldn't have said turn to Matthew chapter twenty-four. They didn't have chapter divisions. And so we have a benefit of. And by the way, neither did they have indexes in their scrolls. They didn't have that either. And so. The Old Testament, the Old Testament canon, it was complete at the time of Jesus Christ. That's the point that I'm making. And those are the scriptures that Jesus relied on. That's the body of Old Testament scriptures that the apostles relied on. And that all the people of that time relied on. Now, the time covered in those 22 books um, is, you go through the history, you go um, from Moses to Artaxerxes, and, and you go from corresponding with Jewish belief um, all the way through Malachi and, and, and to what we believe today, and we believe that Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and so you're going to find what Jesus held to of the Old Testament is the same Old Testament we have today. It was completed. Now the Jew today who does not accept Jesus Christ, he believes that there's, been, there's not been a Jewish prophet since Malachi. And um, because after Malachi, there was no prophet until John the Baptist. But they, they believe that uh, an Orthodox Jew believes that who hasn't received Christ as their Savior, that there hasn't been a Jewish prophet since Malachi. And that the next prophet to come will be the Messiah. 
And that is why they observe the Passover and they always have a seat that is empty there at the table, the seat for Elijah, the prophet who's to come before the Messiah to prepare the way of the Lord. They're looking for that prophet to come because one has not spoken since the day of Malachi in their thinking and what we believe is what Jesus teaches us that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come and, and that Jesus was the Messiah and the Messiah, the Savior of the world. So again, the Old Testament canon we believe, it closed with Malachi just as the Lord Jesus Christ would have had and what he would have and what he did put his stamp of approval upon. So the, those scriptures, they go along with the same Old Testament that we have today. The early Christian writers, they counted the books of the Old Testament, again, as the Hebrews did, 22 books. But remember, it's the same 39 we have. Again, what is the point in all of this? The point in all of this is that the Old Testament canon was considered closed when Jesus was upon this earth. And so for 2,000 years, it's been contained, it's been sealed, it's been uh, uh, stamped with his approval upon it as the authoritative, inspired, divinely inspired, revealed, preserved word of Almighty God. And it's quite significant that we have a book that is reliable, that's relevant, any age, any time, against any trend. This helps us to realize that recognizing what was divinely inspired, it's already been done. It was already recognized by the Jews. They already recognized this. Jesus already recognized this. How? Well, they measured the books by their authority. Their authority was based upon inspiration. They measured the books by their authority. Their authority was based on inspiration. And their inspiration was confirmed by their acceptance of authorship and inspiration by all the churches. I mentioned this morning that there were many other sacred writings that were rejected. And again, the book, The Da Vinci Code, that novel that was very popular, was also very blasphemous. And Dan Brown wrote that, that the Bible was uh, assembled during the famous council of Nicaea in 325 when Emperor Constantine and church authorities purportedly banned problematic books that didn't conform to their secret agenda. And um, except that's not how it went at all. And we know that the, the Da Vinci Code was fiction. I always, I was telling Christy the other day, it, it just, I'm not quite sure how we came up with fiction to be not true and nonfiction to be true. It seemed like those, uh, the non should be considered as not true. And, um, but anyway, um, Da Vinci Code was fiction. It's not true. Voltaire, writing in the 18th century, repeated a centuries-old myth that the Bible was canonized in Nicaea by placing all the known books on a table. They said a prayer, seeing which illegitimate text then fell to the floor. The Da Vinci Code is based on the apocryphal books that the early church clearly rejected. And, these, and they said that these are not the Word of God. I think there are other books. The book of Thomas, 
the Apostle Thomas, but it's really by an unknown author, but it was the book of Thomas. It's another one that was circulating. And, and he claimed that Jesus never went to the cross. He didn't die upon the cross. Instead, he married Mary Magdalene and they had children. And even to this day, there's a secret order that is protected. The heirs of the Lord Jesus that are the living descendants of the Lord Jesus to this day. Again, it's novel. It's, it's, it's fiction. It's blasphemous. And why did the early church not accept the book of Thomas or the Apocrypha? Because they said it had no authority. It had no inspiration. It was not true. It did not go along with the writings of Paul. It did not fit with the writings of John. It was part of what they called the Gnostic, G-N-O-S-T-I-C, the Gnostic gospel or writings. And that's what John opposed in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John. That's what Colossians was dealing with, trying to repudiate such false teachings way back then, 2,000 years ago, teachings like the Da Vinci Code in recent days. It makes for a wonderful story. It makes for an exciting story. But do you think Christianity really would have survived 2,000 years if it were not true? Do you think that that secret that was given, purported by the book of Thomas could be kept for 2,000 years? If Jesus didn't die on the cross, risen from the dead, all his enemies would have to do is produce his body. And they could have disproved the resurrection, just rolled out his body, and you could prove that he didn't rise from the dead. Nobody could do that. Friend, people will not die for what they know to be a lie. They may die for something they think is true, but it's not true. But people will not die for what they know to be a lie. And these disciples knew that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. He was seen, Acts chapter number 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, by over 500 witnesses at one time after his resurrection. And all those kinds of things, again, like the Da Vinci Code and the, the book of Thomas and many, many others that would try to vie for that same level of, of divine revelation. It's heresy. And so we must understand they measured the books by their authority. Their authority was based on inspiration. Their inspiration was confirmed by their acceptance of authorship and inspiration, and rather submission by all the churches. The authority of Scripture was in the Scripture itself. And that's how it became Scripture. That's how we got our Old Testament. Thank you. Let's stand together, please. Lord Jesus.